All through this series, we've been trying to figure out how not to hold on to the painful things of our past. What do we do with them? Uh, First week, we talked about the art of forgiving. Uh, We talked about those people that just kind of bug us and push our buttons. How do we uh, forgive that and let that go? And then we talked about the more serious things where we would say someone has actually sinned against us. Uh, They've betrayed us. How do we navigate through those waters? How do we forgive those uh, people that do that so that we are free from the pain? And then last week, we talked about uh, forgiving God, and that seems like a very odd statement. seems a little blasphemous in a sense, because uh, do we really forgive God? Because God doesn't sin, so how could we forgive someone who doesn't sin? And the concept was that there are certain things that come into our lives that weigh heavy on us, tragedies, hard things, and and what do we do with that? We, in a sense, can hold a grudge towards God uh, because he allowed those things into our life. So in a sense, uh, not in a real theological way, we do need to forgive him, and we do need to let it go, and we talked about that. Uh, This week, as we wrap things up, we're going to really focus on the idea of forgiving ourselves. And that, that's another concept. Uh, it's, it's one of these concepts where do we really forgive ourselves? Yes, no, or do we hold a grudge against us? So we'll try to unpack that as, as we move along. But, you know, it's the, what happens when uh, we have really hurt somebody else? Uh, there's times in our lives where uh, we have just really blown it. Uh, maybe we've betrayed somebody in a different way. Maybe we've been very self-centered. Uh, maybe we've just done the wrong thing and it weighs heavy on us. How do we navigate that and how do we get forgiveness from that person? And sometimes we do get forgiveness to that person, but we still, it weighs heavy on our heart and we seem to not be uh, released from it. Uh, this week, uh, Friends is going to be doing a reunion And I thought that Joey and Ross can give us a little bit of an idea about how to uh, forgive one another, or maybe how not to. I don't know what else to do. I said I'm sorry. Joey? Now now you should scream at me, or or, or curse me, or hit me. I'm not going to hit you. Why not? You'll feel better. I'll feel better. And you know you want to? I can see it in your eyes. (laughs) No, I don't. A little bit. No. A little bit. (laughs) No. A little bit more. (laughs) No, hit me. Give me the bag. Hit me. Joey, give me the bag. Hit me. Joe, I'm not kidding. Hit me. No. Hit me, hit me, hit me, hit me. You know, sometimes we're like that, aren't we? We want someone to forgive us, and uh, we uh, feel bad what what we've done. And they do forgive us, but we do kind of want them to get even with us. It's, it's, it's cost them something because of what we've done, and uh, we feel like they're letting us off the hook too easy. And uh, we say, yeah, you know, hit me, do something to me. I, I still, I can't let this go. I want forgiveness, but I'm, I'm, I'm still holding it on. I feel like I, I need to forgive myself. Uh, they go on just a little longer. <laughs> really hurts. I couldn't help it. When a fist comes at your face, you duck. Look. What is the matter with you? You were supposed to duck. Why didn't you duck? Why don't we talk about this on the way to the hospital? Good, good. Yeah, maybe while we're there, they can check your reflexes. Goes on and on and on. Forgiveness. Forgiving yourself. Being released from that. 
Again, sometimes we've uh, just uh, hurt somebody else so badly, and uh, they graciously forgive us, but we, we can't forgive ourselves. Or there's something in our past, and uh, maybe there's no way to interact with that person or set the communication at least in a better direction. Uh, maybe they're not around, maybe they're out of reach or whatever, and we carry this weight, this, this, this grudge against ourselves, this blame. And so how do we how do, we, uh, do that? Uh, we have to realize we're wrestling with this whole idea of, you know, just, just forgiving yourself and releasing yourself from that. Even though we just sang about how through Christ God releases us from that. But we still have uh, that problem. Um, all of us have probably one a story like that or a lot of stories uh, like that. Uh, for me... Uh, it was, a, it was the year Cindy and I, we were just first married, and it was during the summer, so we're, we're com- or just after we'd been married just about a year, and I was working at a camp, and it was going to be a year-round uh, camp experience. Uh, they uh, had a camp at a resort, and I did programming during the summer. I uh, just graduated from college, and then on the off-season, I would do marketing and, uh, and staff recruitment and that kind of a thing. And so we, we settled into that, and it was, it was a tough summer. It was a hard place to, to be, and uh, uh, the boss, and this is no excuse for what I am going to tell you that I did, but the boss was just a really, his management style was to make everyone afraid and feel like they're going to be stepped out of line, and he would be there right to catch you, and that's just the way he managed. He would just be looking, and if he couldn't get after you after one thing, he would, he would try to find something else to get after you about. And uh, it, it was just really hard. So, uh, so I finally, Cindy and I finally said, you know, th- this just isn't the place for us. We're, we're going to look for something else. We're going to move on and uh, make a long story short. In that area, I ended up going to a church, become their youth pastor. But, but in that in-between, as we're trying to, to navigate this, um, I came up with a list of, of 10 things or 10 reasons why uh, I just couldn't keep working here and, uh, and actually presented them to my boss. And one of them was actually, I said, the way you uh, manage us as a staff, uh, uh, all those kinds of things. But another thing on the list was uh, this thing called Night at the Races. And this thing at Night at Races, what it was is uh, uh, they would get these film strips of these horse races and uh, they would project them on the screen, or I would project them because I was overseeing the programming, and then you would get to um, bet on who was going to win. And I mean, a couple hundred people would show up for this thing. And uh, at first, I didn't think it was a big deal, but then all of a sudden, I started watching all these families and kids, and I go, what am I doing? Am I I planting the seeds of Gamblers Anonymous for the future? All these young kids doing this was like 25 cents, and, uh, you know, I grew up in a church very conservative where they had to wrestle with even if you could play cards anymore, you know, that kind of thing. So this was really, from Bible college, really uh, uh, just bothering me. So that was on my list for him, and he actually uh, came back... um, after I'd given my list, and he said he would adjust all ten of those things so I could stay. And uh, I said, well, I, I guess, I guess I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay. And uh, he said, no, 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 Let you, why don't you sleep on this for a week? I was like, wow, this doesn't seem like the boss I usually work with. But he said, let's sleep on this for a week and come back a week later and uh, tell me you know, how you're feeling about this. Well, to his surprise and my surprise, a week later I came back and I said, I am not staying. No matter if you address all these ten things, I just just this isn't this isn't the place for us. Uh, we don't feel that this is uh, the Lord wants us here, Phil. So anyway, so he asked me, "Well, do me a favor, 
And he said to me, please don't tell any of the other staff, any of the other department heads that you're leaving. I said, okay, I'll do that. Well, I don't know if it was a week later or just a few days later, he uh, approached me and said, Dave, um, you know, who have you told uh, about your leaving? And I said, uh, just one person. And I said, who that was? And he said, uh, really, just one person? I said, yes. He kept pressure. And I said, well, well actually, he said, then he said, well, it's kind of funny because I just heard it from another person. And so what I had done to him is I had lied to him. I had been so nervous, and again, that's not my response. Uh, the scenario shouldn't dictate my response, but I'd been so nervous I had lied to him. And, and I, I, I just felt unbelievable amount of shame because uh, his wife was a Christ follower. He was not, and, uh, and I had all summer long in the back of my mind, I had hoped that this guy would have his heart open to Jesus and all those kinds of things. And uh, I'm like, wow, I have just, I've just blown it. I couldn't get away from him soon enough. So I wrote a letter to him and, you know, apologized and uh, gave it to him. And he's like, don't worry about it. He, he wasn't really concerned about it. But uh, it, just, it just broke my heart. It was a shame I could not get away from. And, you know, and it took a little time for me to actually forgive myself. I feel like I had compromised my whole life by not being able to be honest in this one scenario. And, again, that doesn't mean I'm honest in every scenario, but in this one, it was just right there, blatant, right in front of me. And, you know, we all have those kinds of stories. We all have those kinds of stories where we blew it. We didn't do what we ought to do, and we have this remorse, and uh, it just, just weighs heavy on us. How do we forgive ourselves? And that's been, you know, that's been 32 years, and uh, every once in a while I think about it, and I wonder uh, how that even impacted his life. I've, I have no idea. I mean, he was a lot older than me, so... I uh, don't think he's on the planet anymore, and, uh, you know, his, his wife's a little younger, so she's probably still living, but I just, just wondered what, what impact that had, and, and it would be real easy to let that fall into a shame, and we've all got stories uh, that are like that. Uh, Solomon writes this, whoever tries to hide his sin will not succeed, but the one who confesses his sins and leaves them behind will find mercy. The person that hides it, doesn't identify them, doesn't call them what they are, will not succeed. And that word succeed actually means advance. They will not advance. It's a military term. They will get stuck. So whoever tries to hide their sin, not deal with their sin, not look for forgiveness for their sin, uh, will not succeed. But the one who confesses them and leaves them, that's the idea of repentance, has a change of heart, will find mercy. And that is just a wonderful, wonderful promise. Uh, we're not perfect. Again, that makes no excuses for actions. It's, it's not like, well, since I'm not perfect, it's okay. We, we, we want to move in a direction where we live right lives, where we have a character that to some degree reflects God's character. We just sang about that. We're, we're in motion with that. We, we will never arrive there in this chapter of life, but, but we want to reflect his character, his goodness, his love, his faithfulness. 
And so you and I, when we hide those sins, when we don't deal with those, uh, it, it, we get stuck in them. And, and we as Christ falls, those of us said yes to Christ, can really get good at externally looking like everything's going in the right direction, but internally it's not. And in a sense, our relationship with him um, just gets stuck a little bit because we don't advance because we're holding on to these things. So we do need to ask for forgiveness. We do need to look at the guilt and this conviction and try to figure out where that shakes out and where to try to shake that out so it doesn't land in shame and just gets us stuck. And what's wonderful is he finds mercy. He's just a channel of mercy. God is looking to continually forgive us. That's why he sent his son. He wants to demonstrate that mercy to us. He wants us to experience that. Uh, So we need to move into this area of forgiving. What do we do when we think about that really hard thing that we have that, that still seems to hang on? Uh, Many of you are familiar with the story of David, King David. Uh, King David, very successful uh, in a sense of a spiritual walk, following God, uh, all the stories. Uh, But there is this really dark time in his life where he uh, is, uh, you know, is walking on his roof where he should be off doing other things and being the king. His roof, his house is taller than everybody else's. And in those day and age, when you want to take a bath, you'd put the water up on the roof so it would warm up. In the evening, you'd go there and take your bath. And uh, he looked over, and there's uh, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, uh, having a bath. She does nothing wrong. She's just doing the thing. And and there's this moment where he could have gone, ooh, whoops, and looked the other way. But he doesn't do that, and he calls for her, and uh, he has an affair with her, and uh, she's expecting, and now he's trying to do damage control. And, and again, this is, this is the guy who wrote the Psalms. This is, this is the guy, and he's trying to figure out how to, how to do this, how to, how to navigate this, how to cover himself, how to uh, hide his sins. And, uh, and so he tries to get his, uh, his, who probably would have been his friend, Uriah would have been uh, someone who uh, oversaw some troops, captain of the guard kind of thing, and he's out there, so David would have had a relationship with him. He calls for Uriah, Bathsheba's uh, um, husband, and has him come home and gives an update of what's going on on the battlefield, uh, tries to get him to go home twice to be with his wife. So if he's with his wife, then, wow, that's where the baby's coming from, problem solved. He doesn't do it. Uh, so he comes up with another plan. Uh, he writes a note to the commander, commander out there, and he says, when Uriah is out there and there's a place of hot fighting, put Uriah up in the front, then pull back and let him get killed. And it's amazing that that note Uriah brings, the, the death sentence that David had put Uriah under, he, Uriah carries that back to his boss. And uh, David, this is this, this, this faithful person, this is what David does. And, and we have a couple psalms that reflect the after. He gets called on, his sin gets called out. He doesn't volunteer it. Someone comes and calls him out on it. And uh, he has to process through that. And, and this, is what, this is what he writes. I know how bad I've been. My sins are staring me down. You're the one referring to God I've violated, and you've seen it all, seen the full extent of my evil. You have all the facts before you. Whatever you decide about me is fair. I've been out of step with you for a long time, in the wrong since before I was born. What you're after is truth from the inside out. Enter me 
then conceive a new true life. Very interesting that David starts with confessing his sin. He confesses it to God directly. I mean, he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against other people, getting them to carry out his plan. All these kinds of things. But he goes to God first. When you and I sin, it's God we've violated. The other is after that. It's God first. And we see David identifying that. So when you and I think about forgiving ourselves, really it's not about forgiving ourselves. It's about going to God. It's about owning the forgiveness that he offers us. It's about accepting that forgiveness. It's saying that Christ, what he did on the cross, when he offered forgiveness to me, that that is enough. That covers me. And uh, we don't do that in a cavalier way. We don't want to cheapen that, but we humbly, with, with a heart bowed low, accept the grace that is offered to us. But when we're in this beginning side of this, or maybe even we've spent some years trying to process through this, uh, you know, we come back to this idea of this guilt and this conviction, and uh, we're going to see guilt, conviction versus uh, shame. But guilt and conviction is that I did it. We see David owning it. That's the start of that process when I want to really live in the forgiveness that I have through God and hopefully through the person I wronged. It doesn't always happen that way. I want to, uh, I, I want to see the bad thing I did, the sin thing I did, and, and I want conviction. I want guilt. It's a good thing that I have guilt and I have conviction. And if you've said yes to Christ, that conviction comes from your relationship with God. It comes from the Holy Spirit living within you. So that's a good thing. It's a warning light on your spiritual dashboard. I feel guilty. I feel convicted. This is from God. I need to pay attention. Um, it's like, um, you know, when you don't have good feeling in your feet. It's good that you have feeling in your feet if you step on something and you feel it. Uh, we had a friend a number of years ago that uh, was dealing with diabetes, and she didn't have good feeling in her feet, and she got on a treadmill, and for whatever reason she was thinking she didn't wear shoes on the treadmill, and just chewed her feet up, but didn't know she was doing that. You see, that was a bad thing that she couldn't feel. So when you and I feel guilt, when we feel conviction, when it's God-originated, not somewhere else originated, but God-originated, it actually is a good thing, and we walk away with identifying a sin but we don't walk away in this place of being filled with shame. Because when you and I have shame, we feel not that I did a bad thing, that I am bad. And that shame can just weigh us down. That shame can uh, push us away from healthy relationships. Uh, that shame can push us uh, away from others. It can push us within ourselves. Uh, it, can just, it can just crush us inside. And uh, Isaiah talks about this. He says, fear not, you will no longer live in shame. Don't be afraid. There's no more from, there is no more disgrace for you. You will no longer remember that shame. And that idea is that you and I can be free from shame. If you've said yes to Christ, Christ will forgive you. If you haven't said yes to Christ yet, that forgiveness is available to you. You need to acknowledge your need for forgiveness. You place your trust in Christ. You believe him and ask him to come in and lead your life. 
And that shame can then change. It can be released. You don't have to live underneath that. And yes, when guilt comes into your life and conviction comes into your life, it's like this is great. This is a good thing because it's a warning light on my dashboard. You see, shame connects your actions to your identity, and we don't want that. We don't want that. We have forgiveness from that. I am not what I do. I am my identity comes from my relationship with Christ. So I have the shame of not being honest. I don't even want to say it. I want to say not being honest. No, no. The shame is I lied to my boss. That's what I did. I can tell you reasons why I did it. Those reasons don't matter. But that's what I did. And if I have shame, that means, Dave, you're a liar. No, I can be forgiven of that. I can replace that. Guilt, conviction can change in my heart. And so instead of being a liar, I can be a truth teller. And we could look at places where Paul talks about putting on and taking off. I put off one action, but I replace it with another action. Psalm 51, I don't know why it's in this order, but Psalm 51 is, is uh, David wrestling with his sin. God, forgive me. I acknowledge what I've done. And Psalm 32 is him celebrating the release of shame, the release of guilt, and this is what he says, and we read this often when we celebrate communion. Count yourself blessed. How happy you must be. You get a fresh start. Your slate swiped clean. Count yourself fortunate. God's holding nothing against you, and you're holding nothing back from him. When I kept it, all inside, my bones turned to powder. My words became day-long groans. The pressure never let up. All the juices of my life dried up. Then I let it all out. I said, I'll make a clean, I'll come clean about my failures to God. Suddenly, the pressure was gone. My guilt dissolved. My sin disappeared. Awesome. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Guilt, conviction doesn't have to become shame. Shame can be evaluated and say, is this guilt and conviction from God and can be dealt with? And we don't have to live underneath that. So I don't even have to ask the question, how do I forgive myself? Because I am forgiven. Now, we're going to unpack what that looks like in a few moments, but just a couple thoughts on this. God wants you to use your guilt to draw you into his grace. It's a gift. It's a map. It's a direction. Thank you for guilt. Thank you, Lord, for conviction, because it draws me into your grace, and I receive your riches at Christ's expense. I am forgiven. I have eternity, a Christ-filled eternity rather than a Christless eternity. So guilt is a wonderful thing. 
But if we own up to our sins, when God's light uncovers them, I love that little line there, when God's light uncovers them. Uh, they were saying everybody's in a different pattern, different place of growth. It's a personal relationship with God. And there's times where God's light shines on me and uncovers a sin, covers a bad, now it's more of things of the way I think. Oh, you shouldn't think that way, Dave. That's not kind. That's not nice. That's, yeah, you know, those kinds of things. But uncovers them. When I see them, then I deal with them. Then I experience his grace. I'm so thankful that he doesn't put like a spotlight on every angle of my life because I wouldn't be able to handle the weight of my sinfulness. And maybe you couldn't either. So he sheds light in the right way at the right time. If we own up to our sins, he shows that he is faithful and just by forgiving us of our sins and purifying us from the pollution of all the bad things we've done. He creates a new operating system. When we take that guilt and that conviction and it shapes our lives, it puts us in a different direction. So that is a wonderful thing. It's a warning light. It says, go this way, travel this road. That is a fantastic thing. We get a new operating system and that we get the new version of it. And I don't know what I'm on. You know, let's say I've known the Lord for 50-some years, so I must be on version 50.7 or something like that, right? And every once in a while, there's a new version, not because God changes, but because he wants me to change, and he wants my system to run even more efficiently, aligned with him. Gets rid of that stuff. Grace or the guilt draws me into his grace, so it's a wonderful thing. On the other hand, the devil wants to use your shame to drive you away from God. Sometimes we mess up so bad that we don't even want to go to church. We don't want to spend any time around other Christians or, or the person that we've, we've done such, you know, some done whatever. We said that mean, unkind word, and it, it drives us away from it. It drives away from our spiritual family. But that, that's what the evil one wants to do. Shame will do that. Don't let it. Let shame slide into guilt and conviction. Let the Holy Spirit size it up. Sometimes shame should not exist. Sometimes our embarrassments should not exist. God's not calling that out as sin. That's just something that happened. That's just what you want. It, it doesn't need to be there. But when it comes to guilt and conviction, it's to drive you to his grace. When we live under shame, it pulls us away. And we can be masters at this. We can do all the churchy things, all the God things, all the religious things externally, but be driven in, from God in our hearts. Our mind can be aware, but our heart is just disconnected because we've let that shame drive us from God. God would never forgive me. I, I don't know how David does it. I could take a look at Paul. Paul was, Paul was after Christians, breaking up families, arresting families, and, and somehow he's able to take that and get forgiveness for that, but he doesn't live under the cloud of that shame. You don't have to live under that cloud of that shame. Use the guilt and conviction to draw you into the channels of God's grace and start moving along. And again, it's not like you just pull a switch. Sometimes it's a process. Sometimes in my life, I, I deal with it, and then it comes back in a, in a flash. Like even talking about this thing 32 years ago, almost a shame is starting to rear its ugly head again. No, no, I was forgiven for that. I tried to make that as right as I could. I am covered. God's grace covers that lie. I don't have to 
be underneath that. There's freedom. Paul speaks, Now I'm glad that, not that you were upset, but that you were jarred into turning things around, that you let the distress bring you to God, not drive you from him. The result was all gain, no loss. Do you really believe that? All gain, no loss. That upsetness in our soul and our heart draws us to him. It, it works things around. Guilt can be a gift, while shame can be something we never get past. That shame, that thing we did, oh, it's so heavy, it's so hard, and it just holds us back. We kind of trust God that he's forgiven. We kind of trust God that he's not going to hold it against us. But deep in our heart, we wonder if some way that will be back on the table and we'll feel the shame so we're a little scared to even go into his presence fully, to fully engage with him. So, guilt versus shame. Guilt is good. Shame is not good. When it comes to something in our past that we want forgiveness from, let guilt and conviction draw you to God and keep shame from taking you away from him. So when we talk about repentance often around here, I talk about it in the terms of coffee, so bear with me. But uh, repentance of guilt compared to the repentance of shame, and uh, we can see how the two work against each other or work in tandem a little bit. There's two kinds of repentances, both look and smell, and for many tests the same, yet one guilt will transform your life and the other shame will, leave you, will only leave you with regret and sorrow. And I think of decaf coffee. Decaf coffee, for the most part, if you smell it, look at it, taste it, looks pretty similar to, to regular coffee. I mean, there's really some bad decaf coffees out there, but there are some coffees that go, wow, is this actually decaf? You're like drinking it going, am I drinking caffeinated? You're, you're questioning it. There's some that smell the same, and the same thing can happen with our repentance, and there can be a difference between those two. There is a decaffeinated repentance, and there is a caffeinated repentance, and since I love coffee, this is the way I, I think about it. Terrible, isn't it? The decaffeinated repentance, and there's a Greek word, there's actually a word that refers to this kind of repentance, conveys a change of mind such as to produce regret or even remorse on the account of sin, but not necessarily a change of heart. I don't like what I did. I got caught for what I did. Even if I didn't get caught for what I did, I regret it. But there's not a change of heart. That same operating system continues on. As a Christ follower, we can feel really bad about something, but nothing changes. And again, that's not to feel shame about nothing changed. It's to say, I need conviction because I need to be put in the pathway of God's grace so there can be change. An example of this would be Judas. When Judas betrayed Jesus, he repented. 
Use that word. Then Judas, who betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, he repented himself and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I mean, he was trying to make it right on one level. He repented. He got this payment. He brings it back, throws it to them. They don't know what to do with it. That's a whole other story uh, because they're trying to be... Uh, anyway, I won't get into that. But there, he throws it back to them, and he, he has this repentance, but it isn't a repentance that changes him. And what a waste of repentance. What a waste to have us feel the sorrow and the grief, but not have the change. But not have that change of our operating system. That is, that is, that's just a sad place to be. You see, we get good at cleaning the outside without cleaning the inside. Judas cleaned up the inside. He gave the money back. Everything's looking but But the, the grief and the shame was still there. We read Jesus talking about this idea. You wash, you wash clean the outside of your cups, your dishes, but the inside, they're full of what you got by cheating others and pleasing ourselves, yourselves. Should I? Pharisees, you are blind. First, make the inside of the cup clean and good. Then the outside of the cup will also be clean. Have you ever had this happen? I know you've had this happen. Have you ever gotten a glass and you're drinking something that should be just liquid? And you get, to, you get a gulp of it, and there was something solid in there. And you're like, oh, what was that? You almost, you almost go, do I, do I get, you know, what was that? Was it like a fly that was in the house? Was, what, was, what was that that just went down into my stomach? Ugh. Try not to make anyone sick right now. I could see something go, but, uh, but so, you know, me being a great dad, I, I like to occasionally put stuff in my kids' drinks even now that they're grown up. So we're somewhere, and if we're having a cookie or something, and we're having coffee or whatever, sometimes when they're not looking, I break off a little piece and drop it in there, just watch them drink it. And then they look at me, Dad, you know, because no one likes stuff in their cup. Clean the inside. I would actually rather have a dirty outside of a cup, but a clean inside. But yet when it comes to our lives, we like to clean the outside and not clean the inside. God gives us the grace, the direction, the tenderness, the patience, the love. He'll come alongside you and help you clean the inside out, and then the outside takes care of itself. You don't have to waste any energy on the outside because the inside makes itself out to the outside. Such a wonderful thing. When... um. Samuel is looking for a king replacement for Saul. Some of us are familiar with the story. It's going to be David. Uh, Samuel goes to Jesse, and all the brothers are there, except David's off in the field doing some things, and he's having this conversation with God. Oh, this guy must be the one. This, look at this guy. This guy looks kingly, stately. This is the guy, and this is the conversation going on. But God told Solomon, looks aren't everything. Don't be impressed with his looks and stature. I've already eliminated him. God judges persons differently than humans do. Men and women look at the face. God looks into the heart. That should be reassuring and frightening. That should be reassuring and frightening. When your heart's in the right place and it just doesn't unfold right, God knows that. When your heart's in the wrong place and everything goes right on the outside, God knows that. He looks at the heart. But if you said yes to Christ, if you invited him into your life and his spirit lives within you, you have 
guilt and conviction. So when the heart isn't right, you can know that. Again, that is such a gift. The caffeinated response is this. The caffeinated repentance, another Greek word, conveys a change of one's mind, purpose, and life. You start thinking about something a little differently. And then it starts to show off in your direction. And then it shows up in your life. Oh, it doesn't happen all the time because some things you wrestle with your entire life. But I love when God changes my heart and something that was attractive or something that I wanted to engage with that was out of his preferred will is no longer attractive to me. I no longer have an appetite or a desire. I don't have to, like, turn my head. I don't have to, like, oh, don't do that. I, it just, it's just not a part of who I am. That reflects a caffeinated repentance. I'm changing from the inside out. Again, back to 2 Corinthians. Distress that drives us back to God does that. It turns us around. It gets us back in the way of salvation. I love that. Back in the way of salvation. The idea is that you and I can drift. We can say yes to Jesus, but we can drift. Our lifestyle is not in the way. Before Christians were called Christians, they were called people of the way, the way of Christ. So the way of salvation. So when that guilt, conviction gets us back into the way of salvation, that is awesome. We never regret that kind of pain. But those who let distress drive them away from God are full of regrets and end up on a deathbed of regrets. And now, isn't it wonderful all the ways in which this distress has goaded you closer to God? I love this, closer to God. You're more alive, more concerned, more sensitive, more reverent, more human, more passionate, more responsible. Look at From any angle, you've come out of this with purity of heart. Internal change, heart change, you're more full alive when you let guilt and conviction change the way you look at life, the course of your life. That is fantastic that it works out that way. It's just awesome that God can use that to to change us, to change us from the inside out. We try to put all these ideas and thoughts together. You can't change your past, but God can change your future when you are responsive to guilt slash conviction. When you're stuck with shame, you're stuck. But God can change your future, change the way you are living, inside out, not just changing the outside, so it's a, it's, a, it's a life of discipline, it's a life of trying to follow all these rules, it's a change of the heart where all of this stuff is organic, coming from a growing relationship with Christ. I love the Phillips translation for Acts 3.19. You must repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. That time after time your souls may know the refreshment that comes from the presence of God. Guilt, conviction, 
produces refreshment that comes from the presence of God. And I don't know about you, but I need refreshment all the time. And more than just a cold drink, I need the refreshment that comes from the presence of God. And when I have the refreshment that comes from the presence of God, that means I'm responding to guilt and conviction in the right way, and I'm not letting shame ruin my life. And that is free and open to anyone who wants to lean into that relationship with God. So I challenge you this morning. If you've not said yes to Christ, if you've not uh, acknowledged your need, admitted your need that you've been out of step with Christ or God, that you have this thing called sin and that you want to connect with God, if you haven't got to that point, you can say yes to him and acknowledge that. You can place your trust, your belief that Christ died for you and rose again. That's the power of salvation. That same power is the power of the Holy Spirit that works in your heart and my heart to figure out guilt and conviction so my life can be different, so I can live in refreshment and enjoy the presence of God more and more. And I choose to follow his lead the best I know how. And he gives me just enough light at just the Mount Roman so I can take the next step. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you forgive us. We thank you for guilt slash conviction. We thank you that it's a warning system. Father, help us to hear it, see it, and let the pain of that change the course of our lives. And may we, as we do that, find your refreshment overflowing in our life because we are very aware that you are present. Every time I feel convicted, that is you present. I thank you for that. Father, again, we just ask that you would help us to live in that refreshment. In Jesus' name, amen.